Welcome to episode 8 of the Analytics FC podcast with myself, Tom Warville, and this week I'm with Sam. Uh, no guests this week, just thought we'd mix it up and just myself and Sam do a bit of back and forth over some of the hot topics, uh, players in the transfer window, uh, Women's World Cup, sort of a mixed bag of stuff. So, um, hey Sam. Hey, how are you? Not bad, yourself? Good. I think it's kind of nice to have a one week just for the two of us. I mean, we've had seven, I think, really good guests so far. Yep. But it's all been sort of interview style, so it's nice to actually just sit down and talk about soccer for the week. Okay, so first up, Women's World Cup. So um, I think I might have had a prediction somewhere about England and penalties. I don't want to ride home too much about it, but third place, that is a, a really good result in my, in my eyes. I think they've done really, really well there. And um, without mentioning a certain sexist England tweet, I don't know <laughs> if you've seen that. But, um, yeah. yeah, no, excellent, excellent uh, result there. What did you think of the World Cup in general, and were you happy with sort of the final we got as well? Well, on just on England, I actually, like, supporting Canada, I felt way better about Canada's tournament after watching England in the next two games. Watching them, I mean, take Japan to the very end and obviously have that unlucky young goal at the end, and then outplay Germany and beat Germany in the third-place game, playing really well in both games, I sort of felt better about being eliminated by England. So that was a positive for me over the last week and a bit. The final was, I mean, not great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't It wasn't closely contested enough to really be seen as... I mean, if you're watching that game without knowing it's a final, you'd think it's a group game, I find. Yeah. But, um, I mean, Carly Lloyd tried her best and did some... Uh, that goal is, what, halfway line? Halfway? Yeah, it was about the halfway line, yeah. I mean, brilliant. And I mean, the US deserved it as well. They've played a, they've run a tight ship most of the tournament, had a really good defence, like we were saying on a previous podcast, how they weren't just weren't conceding shots or, or, or goals. Um, and then when it, when it you know, comes down to the, the business end of the tournament, as it were, they delivered hugely with five goals. So, And I mean, the last couple of games, the game against Germany as well, they really outperformed their expected goals, especially in the final. I think they had something like around two expected goals for five scored but it did it didn't seem like they were just getting lucky bounces i mean they did set up some nice chances and i don't think i don't think there's an argument really to be made that they weren't the best team at the tournament especially in the final two games against germany and against japan yeah so all in all what did you think of the women's world cup do you think it's a success and something to build on or do you think it's sort of one country's dominance is pretty much reaffirmed uh, well, it was. I mean, it was the US's first win since '99, so I don't think I don't think there's that much of a worry about one country dominating. I think a lot of whether seeing like it's hard to sort of say, oh, is this a success? Because obviously, in the states, they're going to see this as a huge success, and hopefully, it carries over to their women's league they have in the states. But in terms of sort of the broader women's football, it's like looking at it on a worldwide basis. I think it's harder to tell immediately after what the effects of the tournament will be. I think we have to look like two, three years and four years down the line, how far women's football progresses and if hopefully the media starts covering it a little more seriously, which we definitely saw in Canada and the US, in England less so, (laughs) I would say, which would be interesting to see in the next couple of years. It will be. I mean, I saw a tweet by Danny Page earlier essentially saying, can we get a bit more coverage of the, um, the, the league here in England, purely because we had such a good World Cup. And you want to really continue that same vein of 
you know, showing these stars on TV, which are really just fantastic role models for um, any, you know, young person growing up playing the game, um, which I completely agree with. There's not enough coverage. And yes, you could say it's a growing sport, but this will grow exponentially if you can sort of give it to the masses, as it were. Yeah, and the other thing is it's run opposite to the Premier League season. So it starts in, I, I don't know when it starts, but it starts in like the March, April time and then ends in the fall. So when, I mean, during the summer, we have endless transfer news. You could have a lot more coverage of the Women's Premier League in the UK. Hmm, definitely. I mean, that, that Saturday night slot, which would be um, filled by match of the day, is, uh, is empty. Well, yeah. some god-awful dramas on but it could be filled by some you know some decent football so yeah watch this space i think like you say two or three years down the line we'll, we'll sort of see coming up to the next world cup when whether you know things have changed massively or not and moving on from the women's world cup one thing we really wanted to talk about was brentford which has sort of been the brentford stories have been dominating the analytics scene and definitely my twitter feed over the past two months and so you had a nice piece sort of going over what's happening at Brentford. I think you called it What the Hell is Going On at Brentford, part one. (laughs) (laughs) Aptly titled that, I think. Um, Yeah, so essentially there's been a lot of talk on on Twitter and on various news sources about all the goings on at Brentford, and it's kind of, I haven't really found a specific page or or blog which has run through them really to really pull them apart and say, why these, what's this move, why is it happening, and, and, you know, a bit of background to each of these moves. So you have... The um, Fleming coming in as a um, head of football um, philosophy, which is, you know... <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. I mean, I just don't know. I, I don't know what that is. It's, well, I try to explain that the piece, essentially, the definition of football philosophy I found is essentially how you play on the pitch and transition from defence to attack. I really don't think it's got anything to do with star signs or actual... You know, I mean, I'm sure it doesn't. I'm sure there's um, <laughs> if it, knowing if it does, run. <laughs> it's way above our sort of pay grades, unless they actually are looking into um, you know cosmic alignment and uh, expected goals. But <laughs> but I'm just I'm just curious how is this sort of a fancy title for an assistant manager, or is this someone who's going to obviously they'll be working closely with the head coach and probably with the director of football, well, the co-directors of football at Brentford. Mm. And I'm just, it's an odd title to have, and I'm very, I'm curious to see. I mean, we probably won't see how, what what he actually does and how it works or doesn't work. But it's just, it's an interesting thing to think about. Definitely. So I think part of his role as well is player development. And the, I think the, from from the reading I've done of the sort of, research I, I have is that it's more in, in terms of like a player's path and where the player and the club are going so you want to have them on a set path in terms of developing as a, a professional uh, and an individual because at the end of the day your football career is only a finite number of years um, so you want to be hiring the right people you want to have a real feeling of togetherness in the squad which is you know squad harmony is a big thing if you want to be playing a big long season like you have at the championship um, so I, I definitely think it's more to do with the gelling of the team and sort of player advancement over season, you know, season on season, and they're tailoring that to um, you know the different players in the squad. But that remains to be seen, and, and we're likely not to find out the ins and outs of that role. But I mean, like you say, it's a very interesting one to have, and it's you know openly mocked by quite a few people in the in the in the press. So yeah, part two of that piece is going to be more about the coaches. So they've signed some really. Once again, interesting technical staff. Um, 
in this off season. Um, not really, potentially not really signed, but more promoted to the first team. So that should be out this week. Um, and then part three is going to be players. So I've got loads of video footage, um, data, you know, narratives thrown in just to sort of get a feeling about you know where these players are coming from. Um, and obviously with Brentford, they do a lot of homework on each player. So I want to sort of try and uh, you know entangle the the thoughts and thought process behind each of these signings and see you know if we can find out as a fan why Brentford might be wanting to sign these sort of players. It could be wildly off, but I think that the the tools that we have in place in terms of video, um, stats, uh, you know, historical performances, etc., um, can sort of help us paint a picture as to why they've signed a guy like this. So say uh, Ryan Williams is signed, he's very not a very well known player, played for Morecambe previously, but he looks to be a really, really good free kick taker. So that's just one one example. Another thing I wanted to talk about from this piece was the quote you had in here from Ankerson on <laughs> scouting, which I really like. Oliver, I can read it out. It says, we send a scout, not a game. So he looks if a player is good enough. That's what we have long known. We send him so that he determines if he fits in character if, in our team structure. What would be an exclusion criterion? The fact he's an asshole. Which I, <laughs> I mean, obviously he's joking. He's sort of joking. But they talked a lot about this in baseball when they sort of, we have the data to say, okay, this player has the potential to be good, this player doesn't. And we don't need to really see games to determine that. I don't think we're going to get to quite that level in football, or at least I don't think we're there. But a lot of it is just they would send scouts and say, well, okay, the data doesn't show his cocaine problem he has off the field, or the fact he is just like a jerk or something. So I think it is interesting to see this sort of scouting, the change in scouting, that now scouts may not be sent to look for purely performance levels and what he looks like on the pitch, but to figure out, is this guy a guy who has some problem that the data isn't showing? Which I think plays back to the idea of this philosophy and and team gelling. Um, And another transfer recently that sort of is the opposite end of that is um, Etienne Caput today signed for Watford for a record-breaking, I think, 5.7 million from from Spurs. So um, James York on Twitter um, said that allegedly... Um, Kapu had quite a few fallings out with coaching staff at Tottenham and his attitude's not you know, he's not not got a very good professional attitude, which is the sort of thing where you're thinking, I've just spent a, a ton of money on this guy, record signing for the club and we, you know, really, what we want to be a very solid defensive signing um, and then you look at his numbers and he's not played a whole bunch of minutes considering he's, he's fit um, and they've potentially signed someone who's a bit off the rails and a bit of a you know troublemaker within the team. Now, for a, for a promoted side, that's something you really probably don't want. You want a really good, close-knit bunch of players who are going to fight for each other to try and stay in this league next season. And it's this idea of finding players that fit together in this philosophy as a team. It's, it's less tangible than numbers on the pitch and appearances and minutes, but it, it probably matters just as much, if not more, because these are the guys you're hanging out with day in, day out, and you're training with day in, day out. It was funny, when I saw the Caputo Watford signing, I thought immediately, this looks like a QPR Harry Redknapp signing. <laughs> no, I, I completely agree, yeah. I mean, we'll probably see Sandro go there next as well, and Harry Redknapp will be the Watford manager for the season's out. But... <laughs> so yeah, that's, um, that's, so that's my, my piece. Um, I guess another one that, that you know either of us have written in the past few weeks is your uh, recent Opta Pro blog, which I found really, really interesting about sort of um, variation and attacking play. Do you want to give a sort of brief overview of the uh, the piece? 
Yeah, so I started kind of thinking about this after um, Man United's game, I guess it would be a year and a half ago now, against Fulham, where they drew 2-2. It was under David Moyes, and they put in 81 crosses, and every single piece, uh, po- like sort of post-game recap, said something about the fact that Man United lost or tied because they had two one-dimensional attack, and that was the big problem. And I started to think, well, how often do you hear people accuse the current Barcelona team of having a one-dimensional attack? How you hear, I mean, one-dimensional attack is one of these things that has such a negative connotation, but we don't really, I don't think, have any evidence that it is necessarily bad. So I looked at two years of Premier League data and divided what I, I guess were four different types of attacks, which were through-ball attacks, long ball attacks, build-up attacks, and um, crosses. And then tried to find out if teams that vary vary their attacks in a game actually have any statistical advantage. And I couldn't find anything. There's, I mean, it's not a complete sort of indictment of varying attacks. I think there's a lot of room to to work with it. I talked to Dan Altman, and we had in the podcast two weeks ago now, and he has some other ideas of things to do with this. He thinks he could still find some benefits of varied attacks, but I just sort of wanted to get the discussion going of, is there really a problem with having a one-dimensional attack? And so far, I don't, I haven't found one yet. And I think from that piece, you mentioned that through balls were, the conversion rate on a through ball was higher than a cross. Was that correct? Yeah, significantly higher. Yeah. So this is one of those things where like a varied attack is something in the team's arsenal, but equally, maybe some aspects of that attack aren't as repeatable. Transfer rumours. Let's start Premier League. So, the first one we've got here is um, Sheridan Shakiri to Stoke, which, uh, I mean, there was a bid, I think. I don't know whether that bid was accepted, but that, that's a... Uh, and there's quite a lot of narrative on Twitter about how that's a sort of the embodiment of the television deal, the, the fact that Shakiri was playing for Inter Milan on loan last season. Now he's going might be playing for Stoke City next year. I mean, this is... I find this a really, really strange move, purely because he was at Bayern Munich less than 12 months ago. Yeah, and the other thing about the Shakiri move is it, it reminds me on the surface of the Boyan move that Stoke made last year. Except Shakiri sort of is still, I mean, arguably hasn't even hit his prime yet. He's 22 or 23, and Boyan sort of had his chance, didn't quite pan out for him at Barcelona. He had the loan move, he had an all-right season at Ajax before coming back and then eventually going to Stoke. Whereas, like, Shakiri still looks like he could be but I don't. I mean, it's hard to say he's going to be a world-class player at Stoke. But I feel like he has a lot more upward trajectory than Boyan did making his move. And I sort of think like he hasn't. I mean, uh, the last transfer window in uh, last summer, even so, when Liverpool missed out on Sanchez, I think that they were sort of targeted Shakiri as someone they wanted to go for. And it's like, how has this guy dropped so much from going to Liverpool? Who, I mean, no disrespect to Stoke at all, but how can you drop from being a transfer target for Liverpool? And I think the fee is around £12 million, which isn't exactly a high amount for the player that he, he currently is and may become. And yet he's the only attention he seems to be drawing is that of Stoke. So I think the question is purely down to, is this money-related, or is it literally that Stoke is now a, a, you know an exciting team to join in the Premier League? It's a... Uh, it's a funny one. It's going to be interesting to see where it plays out. It could be that he just joins, you know, someone completely different, and it's all the paper spinning this. But for the time being, you know. Yeah, and I think they're also. I mean, Inter Milan were terrible last year, like really, really bad. So it's hard to sort of judge him solely on that. And I'm just looking at his numbers right now. Last year, 
he was averaging around three shots per 90, which is decent enough. I mean, especially for a guy who's not an out-and-out forward. Like, those aren't concerning numbers at all. So I, it, it's, it's a strange one. And it's a really, really small sample size, but um, in the World Cup, he created the most chances per 90. Now, I think they only played four games, maybe? Um, but that's still yeah. a pretty good tell of, you know, varied opposition, playing with teammates that he plays with less than his club compatriots, and he's still, well, like we say, small sample size, but still, I think it was 4.3 chances per 90, which is pretty good going for an international tournament. Yeah, that's, it's it's a strange one. Mm-hmm. Well, we shall see. The next one, um, Sergio Ramos. Now, I find this just insane. So, what was it, a 29... 29- Twenty-nine million pound bid potentially for twenty-eight, twenty-nine year old. Which, when you're looking at peak ages, I guess of central central defenders, he's nearing the age of his, nearing the peak age even of his sort of playing career. Um, do you think this is a good move as a Man United fan, and then on the other side as someone who looks at the, num- at the numbers? I mean, as a Man United fan, I really don't like Sergio Ramos as a human being which (laughs) (laughs) makes it difficult to get excited about him transferring to united from a number perspective i find it almost impossible to judge i still don't have anything that helps me really judge center backs up on what my eye can see Mm -hmm. and he looks he looks good i mean it's the age thing's definitely a concern i think 29 million is a lot a lot of money but united have tried selling i mean we shelled out 18 million euros for uh Rojo last year, and he's at slightly above replacement level based on what we have in our academy. So I don't... It, it's one of these things where it's clearly a mispriced transfer, but everything that United is... All of United's buys are overbuy, are overpays, so it's hard to really bash it based on that. I mean, even if you look at the, the United side system, um, Van Hal plays a very possession-orientated um, 3-4-3 or whatever he plays when you play three at the back he will it's mainly possession based passing out to uh the center backs and i don't know i mean pass accuracy as a as a stat is difficult to look into because it has no real tell on the the skill of that player it could be that his pass is very simple or his teammates movement is a lot better than his you know passing skill but um i would have thought there are more um you know better passes of the ball available for a lot cheaper price. And also with Ramos's history of red cards and the fact that when you're three at the back on the counter or even on open plate, you can be very stretched. He's not exactly the most cool-headed guy in, in big game situations to deal with one-on-ones, especially going into sort of older years where he might get slower and, and you know less mobile. So I have reservations around that. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think Van Hall is going to go back to three at the back this year. He's sort of he's indicated he wants to switch to a four three three eventually, and sort of the way he's operating this summer makes me think that's going to happen almost immediately. I think Depay is a guy who will play on uh, who will play sort of as a wide forward with Rooney down the center and probably Di Maria on the other side. And it looks like they're shipping out Van Persie, which probably means they're moving away from the two striker system, which again is what they played when they had three at the back. It was usually a three five two or something like that. So I I don't think the three at the back thing is an issue, but I understand completely about the pass percentage stuff. And he's not, I mean, he's not a guy who's going to play with the ball at his feet a whole lot. Hmm. So what do you think about um, Depay? Because his numbers in the Eredivisie last year were, were good, and there were a lot of shots from 
from long range, which he scored, and his sort of set piece taken was equally as good. But there's a part of me which thinks that from looking at the video um, and and the data, you know, this is this guy's you know really good, and and his career development path is similar to that of Ronaldo's, um, which is never anything to turn your nose up at. But equally, he could regress quite a lot, and he's facing better keepers now, better defenses, so he might not be getting that same level of space where he can get a yard or two on a player and then dispatch one into the top corner from, you know, 20 yards out, which he, I mean, if you look at any highlights reel, which, yeah, we'll say what you want about YouTube compilations, I watched it, but, um, you know, he's, I, I just don't know whether he's going to be a good fit, and I've, it's that age where he's very sort of tender and he's got uh, potential um, anger issues and he's had anger management, I think, as well, so... There's a lot going on in this move, and I want it to work out for him and United, but I just think that potentially the uptake in quality of defence in the Premier League might go against him. Oh, well, firstly, I really like him because Ted Knutson liked him, so I'm just glad we got him <laughs> before Brentford did. Secondly, I mean, his shot numbers are still really good. He had, last year, 5.7 shots per 90, which, I mean, keepers aren't going to change that. If you're putting up hmm. nearly six, I, I, it'll go down. But, I mean, five shots per 90 is what the best forwards in the world take, right? I mean, that's a really, really, really solid number. If he's averaging 5.7 this year, I don't see a huge issue with facing, like, stronger keepers. I mean, he had 0.8 goals per 90, which he's obviously that's not going to happen again this year in the Premier League. But a regression from that, while you're still taking four or five shots per game, is not going to be that. It's not going to be that much of a drop-off, I don't think. So I... I mean, I'm still pretty confident that he'll do well in the Premier League, even if it takes a little bit to adjust. And another thing that, I mean, what would be cool to see would be his sort of unassisted rate with shots, because I think he makes a lot of them himself without having to do dribbles or anything like that. Um, without essentially having to beat a man, he just makes a yard of space, which in the numbers probably isn't reflected as a dribble or a take-on, but it is literally like knocking the ball out two feet and then just shooting. Um Another thing also is that from last season, he only had five assists in total. So potentially he's not the most, um, I don't know what to say here, uh, open guy when it comes to chance creation. So that could be something that Van Gaal may need to work on with him in terms of not being greedy and shooting all the time because he could easily turn into, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, Lucas Podolski potentially. Probably a lot better mobile, whatever you want him to be. But in a system where you're not the star of the team um, and there's a lot of quality players around you, that chance creation uh, side of his game might have to improve as well. But, I mean, I'm not my new fan, but I am looking forward to seeing him in the Premier League and, and seeing you know, how his game adapts from what it is when it was in the, uh, in the Eredivisie. That assist thing doesn't really worry me that much. I mean, he's, if you still look at per 90, he's averaging, it was 1.8, or point, sorry, 0. 0.18. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> 0.18 assists per 90 last year, which for top, I mean, he's not, he's not going to be playing as a striker, but for top forwards, that's not, that's a pretty good record. I, I think that's fine. It's okay. And over two key passes per 92. So, yeah. And I, but then also when you look at that, um, the, so they had, um, Jorginho, Wijnaldum and Adam Meyer as well, who were the sort of more attacking sentiments. Both had the same number of chances created. I think it was 2.4 or 2.3 per 90. So it was a very attacking side to begin with. So it's kind of hard to disentangle his input um, from the rest of the teams because it was a big chance creation side. But 
you know, time will only tell when it comes to August 8th against Tottenham. And uh, yeah, we'll see from there. I think this is one we'll disagree on a little less. Falcao <laughs> uh, to Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to fight his corner, and then um, Ben Postley posted something about how his sort of uh, input in games is going down slowly over his age. And um, as much as I want to think he's some sort of um, danger zone, you know, cold-hearted finisher who just constantly uh, exceeds expected goals, uh, not going to happen. I just think this move is. Um, Jorge Mendes uh, accounting magic. I'm not sure the actual footballing implications of this. What, what do you think? Yeah, so apparently um, I was looking, I read an article that United pretty much made back Falcao's, um, the money they paid in jersey sales yeah. alone. So I don't, I, I'm sure that there's some, I don't, I agree. I don't think it's a football driven decision here. Mm. Which is, I mean, it's difficult for us to know because we have on-pitch data in terms of football. But this off-pitch data, and there's a lot of effects that I've spoken to quite a few guys about, essentially, how do you value a move more than the performance? So you want to have this sort of fame factor and the ability to shift, you know, jerseys um, and, and boost revenue with the signing of a player of this calibre. It's hard to calculate because we don't have any of the numbers. And even if you have the the team records, there's so many factors going into revenue year on year that it's kind of hard to once again disentangle those effects. But it's um yeah if if that's true then, but but then again having said that coming into this year with United it was an unknown on his performance level what he was going to be like. Whereas now the whole year the whole league's seen a year of him and they know that he's not what he was. So I wonder how much of an effect that's going to have on his shirt sales at Chelsea. Yeah. I mean, it's a bit like if you sign Torres now, you hit the number of shirts that you sell is probably going to be a lot less considering you know his history and you know the fact that this season, if he came back, he'd probably be ridiculed again. But, I mean, fingers crossed for the guy. I hope he's not completely knackered and ruined his knee. But, uh, yeah, like like I said, I don't think we can see this being a, a good move for him. So you wanted to talk about Liverpool? Yeah, I have found Liverpool's moves fascinating this summer, mainly just sort of in light of what they did last summer and whether they, whether it sort of just, I think gives an insight into the, what Liverpool thought of their past season, which I think is not that what we did last season was wrong, just that it didn't work because it looks like they're making a lot of similar type moves. (laughs) I think this, this year as they did last year, which maybe they're right. I mean, I don't have, I don't have any reason to think that after one year, Liverpool should blow up everything. And it looks, I mean, signing Klein, that move looks a lot like the signing of uh, Lovren from Southampton last year. Milner is sort of a, not quite, but an Alana-type move. Uh, Danny Engs is, well, I guess you can't call him a rookie Lambert-type move since he's about 15 years younger. But <laughs> but it's a lot of sort of trying to spread spread sort of the uh, value-added loss with Suarez, because that's essentially what they tried to do last year, was we lost Suarez, and we're going to add four guys to make up for it. We're going to add Lolano, we're going to add Balotelli, we're going to add um, Markovic, and they sort of tried to spread spread the loss. It I mean, obviously didn't work in a one-year sample, but I just think it, it shows that Liverpool doesn't regret what they did last summer, I think. 
I mean, that that idea of trying to replace Suarez in terms of, like, Lalana and those other players, it sounds like something that's come straight out of baseball, essentially, well, Moneyball specifically, the fact that they lost three of the key players, the Oakland A's lost three of their key, key you know, starters, and try to replace their numbers in other rough, very rough diamonds on the, on the field, which had the numbers just under... Um, you know, in the form of different metrics that weren't as valued at the time. And it just seems to me the moves last season, in terms of you lose this amount of striking up front, how do you replace that by signing a midfielder and, and a really young, raw attacker and Balotelli? It just, it, the the logic there, I don't know, evades me. Although it could be something completely different, but it, I've heard that, like you said, that idea before that they've tried to replace Suarez with several key pieces uh, and it just doesn't seem to have to pay off, but... Yeah, and uh, some of these are not strange signings, I don't think, but signings that sort of are, it's hard for us to evaluate. I mean, the Firmino one is really hard for us to evaluate, hmm. given that we don't know how he's going to transfer from his last year in the Bundesliga to playing in uh, to playing in England. Danny Ings is a guy who we essentially have one major sample, Premier League sample on, and his shot numbers weren't great. He was under three shots per nine. He's so it's it's really hard to tell how sustainable a lot of these things are and how they'll transfer over to I the Premier League and to Liverpool. I think the Ings move is is probably the most positive and safest bet because he was only well six million I think compensation. Um, he was playing on a pretty poor team, so his shot numbers are probably going to be affected by that, especially the quality as well. And he still managed to get a, a decent number of goals. He's twenty three, I think. Um, so I think. Playing in, in a team like Liverpool can only be good for him purely because he, he's young, he's still learning. Um, I really like that move. I think, like you said, Klein, yeah, we'll see. Um, he, he was good last year, he was really good. And um, it's just whether he can pull those performances across to Liverpool, as we've seen Lovren struggled. Maybe it's, you know, they had it so good at Southampton, it's actually difficult to fit into a new system. Yeah, I mean, Liverpool are an intriguing side. And I, I mean, for me, you know, do you think. Even would he would he start as a striker? Would he start as a false nine? I mean, if you're picking that that first match day squad, what are you what are you thinking? Uh, so much I think still depends on what happens with Sterling. Mm. I mean, I I assume he will be gone by then, but we still we still don't know that hundred percent. So you reckon? Do you reckon he's going to go City? I mean, is, I, mean, I if I was to put money on it right now, I think it'd be City, but yeah. I, I I don't know. The best thing for me in this move is I saw on Twitter that um, Liverpool have now got two um, Brazilian guys called Phil and Bob playing in midfield, and they've got an English guy called Gomez at the back because they've just signed. I think it's Joe Gomez from Charlton. Is it? I, I mean, <clears throat> Liverpool are a fun one purely because every year they do something and it's literally like flip a coin, it's going to work or it's going to fail dramatically. So I'm hoping for them that Firmino is a good move, and I'm hoping that. Brendan just starts to get less less stick because you know there's quite a few reasons. One of them being that Mike Goodman wrote about Liverpool at the end of the last season, essentially saying the money that they're spending, the the budget that they have, where they finish in the league every year is pretty much on par with where they should be finishing. So, I I mean I really like Brendan Rodgers, and one reason I mean I sh- I'm supposed to hate Liverpool, but I actually I really enjoy watching Liverpool and sort of following the team because they're I would say out of the top. Seven, maybe the with well, the exception of Southampton, the top seven teams are the only ones that really do things that surprise me on a regular basis. I mean, you look at the moves that 
Chelsea, City, United, Arsenal, and Tottenham all make. None of these really ever are like shocking moves, whereas Liverpool always kind of keep me puzzled, which I enjoy. Yeah, no, that they should be a fun side. It's just um, there's still a long way to go in the transfer window as well. So you know there could be a few more moves which are even more intriguing than the ones we have there. But you know it remains to be seen. There's still a good month and a half to go in the transfer window. So um, another team that I want to talk about is Atletico Madrid. So they've lost quite a few key pieces. So just while we're recording, they've just lost Arda Turan to Barcelona, which for me is out of the blue. I haven't seen anything about that anywhere, which is quite an interesting one. Um, Miranda, who was there, you know, starting centre-back, really solid Brazilian, has just left for a two-year loan, I think, to Inter Milan. Um, and Mario Mandzukic as well has joined Juventus to replace Carlos Tevez. So they're being left with probably three of their key pieces from last season gone. Um, and with sort of Seville really heavily investing in their side and Valencia doing the same also. I don't know how much attention you pay to um, Spanish football, Sam, but I know you wrote that piece about Atletico a while back. Do you think that, you know, it's, it's weird to see that a team like this is getting picked off for probably three of their key pieces there. Do you think that they they can bounce back from this and that sort of style they play of really impact, you know, very solid defensively is due to the players that you've seen or do you think it's more Simeone's approach to the game? I mean, I've said now, this would be my third year in a row saying that I think this is sort of Atletico is is due for a big drop-off because I thought they were due for a big drop-off after losing Falcao that year. They won the uh, Europa League. Obviously, didn't happen. They made the Champions League final and won the league the next year. I thought they were due for a big drop-off after losing so many pieces this last summer. Didn't happen again. So, I mean, the evidence says that these guys, they're going to do all right losing these guys. But I think the team is getting thinner and thinner, and the replacements are getting... I mean, Mandzukic was essentially a replacement for Diego Costa, mm. right? And now he's gone. It'll be interesting. And now, I guess, is Fernando Torres the replacement for Mandzukic? <laughs> I don't know. The Turan one is bizarre, because as far as I'm concerned... As far as I'm aware... I don't think he can play for Barcelona until January because of the transfer ban, which yeah. makes it a really strange one. I think that's the same with because um, they signed Alex Vidal from Seville as well, and I don't think see I, there was much confusion whether he was going to either play for Seville until then or just not play at all. So whether these are moves that are due to go through in January or they're going to rot in the reserves until January comes around, I don't know. But yeah, interesting point. Um, I guess another team which we've spoken about previously, Juventus, I'm finding quite interesting. Um, Sarling, um, Dybala, uh, Sami Khedira, um, keeping Paul Pogba potentially as well, which will probably be the most impactful move of the year. They're getting another year of a really growing startlet um, in that side. Um, I think I think Turan to Barcelona pretty much means Pogba will stay now. Yeah. Since he, I mean, that was the main suitor for him. Do you not think, I mean, there was something on Friday, I think, saying City's FFP sort of uh, constraints have been lifted. Do you think that changes anything with Pogba? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd love to see him in the Premier League, but... Yeah, I mean, I really like, regardless of the cost, I think the, the uh, Dybala signing is going to be a really good one. I mean, he was fantastic this past season and had good shot numbers and stuff too, so I think that's sustainable to some extent. I the Kadira one's tough to assess just because we don't know what he's going to be like after however many months out with injury. So 
it's a hard one to assess, but I think in general, I like what Juventus has done. But a, a key piece that they've lost today as well is uh, Andre Perlo has gone to NYCFC, which neatly takes us across to uh, MLS, um, which I, you know, there's a few interesting moves here. So three um, big midfielders in the day now in the league with uh, Gerard of going to LA Galaxy, Lampard to uh, NYCFC and Perlo to NYCFC as well. Um, does this interest you at all? Do you think these guys are going to be any good? Or do you think it's more, like we've spoken about with different players previously, it's more about getting the money in and getting the interest in the league, which isn't one of the sort of big ones, uh, you know, globally so far? I don't know if I really buy the narrative of, like, these players go over just to have a vacation and take, take get huge salaries just for running around and not really putting in the full effort. I think these guys take the job seriously when they travel across seas and come to MLS. I think what's much more likely is the fact that MLS is a really athletic, physical league. These guys often struggle. They're on the they're going downhill already and they're coming to a physical league, playing on significantly worse teams than they were in England or wherever else, so they look worse as well. So I don't really think it's a it's a case of these guys are packing it in and moving to MLS. It's more a case of these guys are getting older and worse, and MLS is a young athletic league. What I'm interested to see is how, and quite a few people have alluded to this also, how um, Perlo and Lampard, two pretty immobile, slow midfielders, are going to fit into a New York City FC system, which previously has um, preferred a, a sort of 4 one 2 one 2 formation. Because uh, as soon as you bypass those two, you're in behind you know, <laughs> through to the back five, so. Yeah, I have a feeling with New York, we're going to get, uh, at some point over the next year and a bit, we're going to get a big blow up between the actual football staff there and the ownership and with the uh, city football group, just because you can't just keep forcing these signings on a team that's trying to do something and trying to develop beyond just being a place where big names go to retire. Mm. But then equally, on the flip side of that, you do have the, the benefits of, the loan system, and I know they've got um, Angelino, who is much hyped about uh, a really, really quick and tricky left-back who's just joined the side. Um, And then you have Shea Facey as well, who's uh, an up-and-coming English sort of centre-back and and full-back. So there are benefits to both sides, but I think, like you say, it's it's tough when you have someone whose sole focus is the revenue of building the sort of off off pitch side of the game more than the on pitch side of the game you're you're fighting a losing battle really I mean I just, like what happens if Jason Christ says okay Pierlo you've played terribly in your five games so far in MLS I'm benching you we have better center midfielders in front of you and Pierlo doesn't play for the rest of the season what is and he's completely fit he just isn't up to the he isn't doesn't fit into Jason Christ's plans what does the city ownership group do then I think my guess is they take Pierlo's side over Crisis. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I can see you know Crisis. It's always going to be a tough first season because you're a new team in the league. But I can see him leaving before any sort of big blowout happens, purely because he's a smart coach and he's tactically very aware, and he could easily go to any. Uh, there's been stuff said about him going to uh, join the sort of national team set up in the states. Uh, for the next sort of World Cup, and I, I can easily see that happening, especially when or or another MLS team. But I can easily see that happening when you have a really talented coach there who's not being given the um, the sort of focus and resources he deserves. 
and, and the control of the club, which, I mean, potentially looking at clubs like Brentford, control isn't everything. But when you're favouring it more on, on growing revenue and not, like I said, growing, growing the team, it's it's difficult to stay in that situation. So I think that what happens to Jason Christ will be under big scrutiny, especially considering, you know, the team could actually get worse now that Perlo arrives. But we'll, we'll, it remains to be seen, but <clears throat> with Perlo and Lampard joining up at the same time, um, yeah, the, the sort of latter half of the season for NYCFC is going to be an interesting one. Moving back overseas, I want to talk a bit about uh, your favourite team, who have definitely been linked with some big, big names this uh, offseason, and that's, well, well, Arsenal and Arturo Vidal has been the big one. What are your thoughts on him? Um, I mean, it's good, because we have the sort of Sanchez-Vidal-Chilean connection there, and, uh, you know, he's going to recommend the place and, and, you know, make it sound really good, and I'd, I would love Arturo Vidal. The only query for me is fitness uh, of the guy. He plays big numbers of games, um, and he's had injury troubles previously, um, just staying on the pitch. I think in the Champions League final as well, he just looked worn out. Um, and also, that's the thing that I'm finding difficult with Sanchez, is that he played a big season, then Copa America. I'm not sure how how fit he'll be for pre-season, just because he's essentially played two seasons non-stop. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd take Vidal, and we're probably due another big money signing, because that's just the, the business plan that, that Wenger and Arsenal have, is sort of pay off the stadium, they've got money to spend on these players, so Vidal could be an interesting one. Um, I know Benzema was linked as well, which um, you know you'd probably take, but you have to say what does that mean for potentially Walcott or Giroud? Because Giroud's good quality and Walcott good quality, but you have to be thinking realistically. You've got to displace one of those to fit Benzema if we signed him in. Um, so yeah, I mean those would be interesting moves. Um, Arsenal tend to do their business either really early or really late. So um, I think we've sort of seen the early business happen with Petr Cech, which isn't a very much required signing. Um, it just remains to be seen what other areas they're going to fill in the meantime. Yeah, Vidal's an interesting one as well, because you'd see sort of... It would be interesting to see, I think, the pecking order between those... I, you'd probably have four or five midfielders fighting for those two spots, considering if they still play with two centre midfielders and then a th- attacking three and a striker in front. Because you'd have the question of where do you play Ramsey? Do you still want him up or do you want him back? Wilshire's future, I think, would come to question there if Fidel came. I just think a lot of pieces would start to move around if Fidel came to the club. I mean, I think uh, it's, a, it's a valid point, but I think that with Arteta and Rizitsky potentially and probably leaving uh, next season just because of the, the age and the contracts they're on, um, Podolsky leaving as well, I think that Wilshire's future is pretty secure. And I think that any signing of Vidal's level or, or similar, maybe um, Charles Aranguiz, his um, Chilean international teammate, you know, either of those signings would be welcomed. And it would be a bit of a power struggle at first, but I think that in the long term, that squad depth is something that Arsenal really need in terms of, you know, we lose a centre midfielder, we have someone who's young and fit and ready to take on that position and not, no disrespect to Arteta Rosicki, because they're still both great players. But they're in the you know sort of twilight of their careers. It would be good to have some younger guys around. So it's one of the first summers where Arsenal have really got to sort of look to strengthen those areas where people are getting you know aging, and we want to haven't really got anything in the pipeline. Uh, maybe another defensive signing, considering Mertesacker is sort of getting old as well. He's really not out of the club just yet, but it would be good to have someone who's twenty twenty one. Um, 
you know, climbing the sort of ladder ready for when he leaves the club and, and we have someone uh, sort of ready on the production line to replace him. I quite like that Podolsky's gone um, and it would be good to see some signings. With Arsenal, I always, I love the transfer window in general, but um, with Arsenal, I always just want to see loads of signings <laughs> and I just don't think it'll happen, but, um, you know, we'll see. So another signing that I was sort of interested in is that of Dimitri Payet uh, to West Ham from Marseille. Um, it's quite an interesting move purely because his numbers last season looked quite inflated with lots of chances created, but a side which had uh, Gignac up front who was quite prolific and they were quite an attacking team anyway. And I think Payet comes across and he's 29 years old and he came for quite a big fee of over £10 million. Um, so I'm just I'm intrigued to see how he gets on in terms of he was playing pretty much in tandem with Gignac and they were both boosting each other's uh, stats in terms of shots and, and chances created. Whether Payet any his sort of underlying performance it will be any good at West Ham considering he's playing with a different set of strikers remains to be seen. But it's quite a lot of money for an aging guy so it, it would be good to see that they've done their homework and they've not just signed him based on one season's worth of performances and data. It's also, I think it's interesting, it becomes harder to sort of disentangle team effects from an individual player when you have such a distinctive playing style under a manager like you had at Marseille with Bielsa. You have this high press, which, I mean, if you look at their uh, table position and their points and goal difference and any major indicator like that, it's they started improving from, well, they had that eight-game winning streak at the start of the season and then went downhill pretty quickly as, I guess, fatigue set in, squad death became an issue. And it's really hard, I think, to disentangle how good is this player playing on a team like West Ham with Slavin Bilic, who we have no idea what sort of style West Ham will play next year, versus a team that has a very distinctive style under a very distinctive manager who we know play exactly or play a similar way consistently yeah I think that he'll definitely enjoy the workload a lot a lot more purely because I think Bielsa's tactical regime was just insane because of the, the amount of pressing and running the guys did on the pitch every 90 minutes but yeah no I agree there's a lot like you say team effects and and something that we touched on in the last episode with Dustin as well the sort of tactical and stylistic effects are kind of hard to wean out of both the numbers and potentially the video as well, unless you you amass a large amount of uh, footage in order to see that these are repeatable aspects in, in a team's style and a team's play. So, yeah, I mean, Payo was playing with a big guy up front last time, and now he's going to be playing with Sacco and Valencia, who are both a bit smaller, both a bit more mobile. So it's good to see whether he can adapt in the league or, or you know, not. So we've talked a lot today about forwards and midfielders, and one position we've talked very little about has been defenders and goalkeepers, which I think, I mean, they're really hard to evaluate. We've said often on the show that we have difficulty evaluating them using statistics. Do you know why? I, why do you think we have such problems with this? I think, I mean, a lot of work that's been done previously is that goalkeepers, are their performances can be really random. And season on season, you have some guy who's insane and he's saving a lot, say, like Fabianski last season. And then coming into the next year, he it could literally just be that he had one season where he was overperforming or, you know, he was just having a lot of shots in the danger zone. Some of the time he managed to get his body in the way, other times he didn't. And it was just they were more lucky that the shots close to the goal hit him, whereas in any of the season he would have conceded most of them so goalkeepers are difficult because like a lot of people try and point out that there's more aspects to a goalkeeper than just safe percentage 
And like we have with um, Testegen at Barcelona, you you choose, if you're going to play a specific style, you choose a goalkeeper to fit that style, like you have uh, Testegen at Barca and Neuer at uh, uh, Bayern Munich. They both fit into the respective styles because they have good feet and they you know, are as comfortable on the ball as an outfield player is. So, And then you have goalkeepers where they have to claim crosses. How good are they with that? How comfortable are they? And that... The Ospina's sort of cross-collection in the past has been called into question, as has, say, uh, Chesney's ability to go and claim a ball that's on the edge of the area. There's been a lot of times where he'll sort of sprint out and then be literally in no man's land, um, and his positioning is dreadful. So season on season, goalkeepers are, are difficult, and equally with defenders. If you want to look at raw tackling numbers, that isn't really an indicator of how good a defender is. It's more an indicator of they play a specific way. They are more of a, an attacking defender that goes out and actively tries to find those tackles, whereas you have a player that tackles less, like, say, the age-old example of Paolo Maldini, he'd only make, like, a tackle a game, but his positioning was so good, he didn't need to make tackles. So is that the context with the numbers in the team you're playing in? And we keep saying it so many times, but it's literally the big problem is disentangling team effects when you have a team of 11 players. How do you break that down onto a player-by-player basis? Do you have to look at the top level and look at literally goal difference or total shot ratios while a player is in the team? Or do you have to do really, really granular, this player made this movement to block off this run or this tackle? Um, It could go one of two ways, but it needs to go that way rather than he made 10 tackles, this guy made 15, the guy made 15 tackles is a better defender. I also think part of the problem is when you look at goals scored, you have a pretty exponential uh, rise up the table. So the teams at the top of the table are scoring significantly more than just than the teams at the bottom, and it's not a linear trend at all. It's exponential. But when you look at goals conceded, it's a pretty linear trend downward. I mean, there are, you look at a team like Southampton, finished sixth and were the uh, had the best defense in the Premier League, or they might have been the second best behind Chelsea, I can't remember. But they had one of the best defenses in the Premier League Whereas you would never, ever see a team, well, I can't remember ever seeing a team finishing sixth in the Premier League with the best attack in terms of goals scored. So I think because you see this non-linearity in attack, whereas it's much more linear in defense, it becomes a lot harder to sort of sort out which defenders are really world-class from which are just good playing on good teams. Whereas with attackers, because the top attackers score so many more goals and the top teams score so many more goals it becomes much easier to sort out which attackers are a level above just being good i think that's a really interesting point and it makes me think that it's more about the i mean take southampton for example and liverpool signed uh dejan lovren last season uh nathaniel Clive just this season and maybe these players aren't actually all that skilled in defence, but it's more the, the coaching aspect and the, the style and how a team sets up defensively, which is the more valuable aspect of, of the team. And you can put any player in that in that team and they will do a really good job. Um, take Ryan Bertrand. He wasn't a special defender at Chelsea. He wasn't great. I think he was on loan at Aston Villa as well. He wasn't exactly standout. And yet he plays in the Southampton side, which is a really um, rigid defensive unit, and he gets in the team of the season. Now, that doesn't really tell you much that he's improved dramatically over a few seasons, but it's more he's done really well and stood out in a system which suits the guy well. So maybe with defences, it's worth looking more at the system and the coaches around the system than it is the actual individual players. 
Well, yeah, and this, I mean, pretty much the exact same thing you have with Jose Font, right? You had a guy who was, we had lots and lots of data on. He played at Palace before, he played in Portugal, and then suddenly with Southampton over the last couple of years, he was incredible. Like, that came sort of out of nowhere in a way that you would never see with a 29, 30-year-old attacker. And he sort of supports the fact it might be a team effect thing. And he's had different defensive partners every season with, with players leaving. Like, say, he was in League One with that team. He would have had a different defensive partner when he went to the Championship and then the Premier League. And then Lovren leaves and he gets Toby Alderweire next to him as well. So it, it must be there must be team effects in there that could be measured in terms of defensive partnerships or the ability for a guy to, you know get into a certain defensive system, learn that system and be able to play in that system with any other player on the pitch. Um, defence is really interesting and obviously it's not going to be resolved overnight and it's not as easy to pick out a specifically skilled defender from the numbers, but it's definitely something that's an interesting problem to have even though it takes more data, a more open-minded view to how defences work. Um, and, you know, long-term, two or three years down the line, we have a completely new way of valuing defenders and a completely new sort of metric and, and system around that. But, you know, right now, if you're going to judge a defender off just his tackle numbers or his interception numbers, think of the context and think of the relevance of that in the in the greater picture of that team and that league. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough problem, but it definitely is an interesting one. Definitely. So just to finish off, let's do, before we even have started the preseason, let's do some <laughs> Some pre-preseason predictions. Let's do Premier League and Champions League winner this year. Oh, okay. Um, Premier League, I think that, that City, they're going to have a, a good window. Uh, and I'm sort of thinking that it's going to be them and maybe maybe Chelsea, maybe Arsenal. I don't know. I want to say Arsenal because I'm an Arsenal fan. But um, I think the Premier League next year should be tied to the tightest one we've had for a few years purely because... Man U look back to strength and Van Gaal's got a year under his belt. Um, Wenger gets another signing in and also continue to go from strength to strength and sort of the back end of the last season were playing better than any team in the league. Um, Chelsea have just one solid defensive unit and they just play really, really well. And Mourinho has that side really, you know, the style of play drilled, drilled into them. Um, and then City just unpredictable and a great side to watch. So, Oh, it's tough. I reckon pre-pre-season, um, City, Arsenal, Chelsea, United. Okay, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go Chelsea with the sort of asterisks that I think City. If they, I think City can can make a few signings and win the title. I think that they're the sort of age thing's been overblown with City, and I think that they're just a few pieces away from being right up there with Chelsea. So Champions League, who are you thinking? Uh, I guess the easy answer is Barcelona. I'm I'm going to go with what I think would be I would like to see, which is Bayern Munich finally win under Pep in his last year. Yeah, uh, as much as I probably agree with you, I quite like that idea. But I just think with Barcelona's transfer ban being lifted in January, they're going to have some new signings potentially. They might not gel in in time, but then you have another year of Messi who is literally, I think, only just in his peak age years in terms of sort of playing a minute, so he's probably going to get better, which is quite a scary thing. So uh, I'd love to see a sort of Barca uh, Bayern final and then, you know, a Bayern winner, but we'll see. It's a long way away yet. <laughs> That's going to be May next year, but pre-pre-season, yeah, let's go uh, a Barcelona Bayern final. So I think that about wraps it up. 
that this is probably going to be our longest episode yet, so never let us just do a podcast with the two of us again. <laughs> if you're still with us, that is. <laughs> Anyways, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll be back soon. If you guys have any suggestions of guests you want to see on the show or people who or topics you'd like us to talk about, let us know because we're open and looking for new ideas all the time. Cool. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. Bye.